isn't gone. All good? Yeah. Guys, um, when we say present God, one of the questions we have to ask is, so in what form, something better, in what form or what nature is, and throw out all these that are not working, eh? Is he going to present himself? In what form, yeah, or what nature is he going to present himself? We are talking about present God and present God, as in he is a present God, he is present in our midst, and we are going also to learn how to present him to people. So today we are going to talk about, okay, so present God, but when he is present, what is the form he takes? What is the nature that he approaches you with? What is the person that he's coming to you as? Or who is he coming to you as? Is he coming to you? Is Jesus coming to you as mighty king who rides a white horse in uh, Revelations 19.1? Or is he coming to you as a meek king riding a donkey in Matthew 21.5? Which one is he coming as? Because it's important to discern it is important to discern who God is presenting himself as. Because once you know who God is coming as, you will know where he'll be heading, what he'll be doing. If Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem on a war horse, white war horse, as a mighty king, then I'd say something to you. Jerusalem would have been in tremendous fear because this is a returning warrior king. Instead, he comes on a donkey, and Matthew 21, 5 says, Behold your king who comes riding on a donkey, gentle and meek. The prince of peace is what he came into Jerusalem as, not as a mighty warrior king. And sometimes we don't realize that it's so helpful to know how God is presenting himself to you. Because it gives you an idea of what he's up to. So discern who God is present as and discern how God wants to present himself. Discern who God is present as and discern who God wants to be presented as. Guys, worship leaders who don't learn this will always be worship leaders. Worship leaders who learn this will be revealers of God. Worship leaders who don't learn this will always be worship leaders. Worship leaders who learn this will be revealers of God. They'll, they'll know, oh shucks, God's turned up like this. We do it with our bosses, eh? We go to work and we look at the boss to see what is he or she like today. And so much at work depends on what you figure out. Children do that every day with parents. Who is more approachable? Who can I milk today? And so, here are some ways we can, uh, we can begin to discern who God is present as. One of the things that he'll always be present in and present as is in John 13, 35, where he says, hey, one of the ways people will recognize me through you, my disciples, is when you begin to love one another. And so it might sound like a very cliched Christian 
perspective. But one of the ways he'll always be present as is whenever there is love and truth, there he will always be present. And whenever he presents himself, these two will be critical to his um, appearance. They'll always be, even in discipline, even in judgment, God will always present himself in a way that is constantly, consistently loving and constantly, consistently true. In First John chapter uh, 1, sorry, First John 3, 16 to 18. First John 3, 16 to 18. First John three sixteen to eighteen. First John three sixteen to eighteen. And it says here, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Verse 23 and 24. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. The spirit of God becomes very evident when Jacob speaks the truth and Jacob is loving. He will always present himself to Jacob and through Jacob to anybody that Jacob comes into contact with. When Jacob makes truth and love a primary quality of his love, of his life, because it is it is, it is absolutely God in every situation to turn up because love and truth are two foundations that he builds his throne on. John 13, 35 puts it this way, that they will recognize you as my disciples when they see how you love one another. And so one of the easiest ways for God to turn up in every encounter you have is when you actually begin to determine that one thing I will do in all my relationships and in all the encounters I have during a day, is I'll try to practice this double whammy called truth and love because God will show up. But the hard thing about practicing truth and love is that it requires selflessness because truth and love don't exist well with self-centeredness. Big difference between self-centeredness and selflessness. One does not want to pay the cost. One does. One is for those you think deserve it. One is non-discriminating. That is why love and truth find it very hard to coexist with self-centeredness. So one of the first ways then that I can make sure 
that God can present himself any which way he wants through me, in me, is when I begin to love in deed and truth because he begins to abide in me and abide through me because he's always present in love. Always present in love. Always present in love. Guys, at the end of the day, ask yourself this question. I'm so willing to take it slow on this point because uh, these are points we just avoid because we hear so much about love in the church. It's become like... Um, almost like a pop song. But uh, here's the thing, eh? That what else do you desire in your life than God to present himself through you to others? What else could be greater? You already have access to him. You get to enter into his throne room. You get to talk to him. You get to hear him. You've got it made. What else do you live for other than, oh God, through me, can you present yourself to the rest of the world? What else was Jesus living for? Father, sacrifices and offerings you didn't require. What you require is a body. I'm willing to go and through me, let the world have a visible encounter with an invisible God. What is greater? What is greater? What greater purpose? Now do you realize Christ in your hope of glory? For you, it's already done. What about the others? The second point, how do you discern who God is present as? Go to 1 Kings 19, 10 to 13. 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 I just find this guy amazing. He's having a really bad day. But my God, he hasn't lost his uh, he hasn't lost his ability to figure God out. First Kings nineteen, ten to thirteen. This was perhaps one of the really bad days in his life. First Kings nineteen, ten to thirteen. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars. Put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Go out and stand in the front of the mountain before the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Just imagine this, eh? It is the kind of wind that is taking Grouse Mountain apart. It is just ripping stones off Grouse Mountain, shaking rocks. And he's been just told by God, listen, come out and stand in front of the mountain because I'm going to pass by and you need to talk with me. And that's when this wind hits. And by the way, the wind was always a sign of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. Elijah was used to fire, man. Just two weeks ago, he had brought down fire on Mount Carmel. He knew this was a God sign. And so, and then there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out, stood at the mouth of the cave. The thing is, guys... No preceding word, no past experience, 
No pattern from the past, as powerful a signature as it may have been in your life from the past, can be used to discern God in the next two minutes. You cannot. God presents himself so creatively, so differently, that I can only use the past as a means to remember that God is powerful. Experience should enhance trust, but it shouldn't stereotype God. Experience should enhance trust, but it shouldn't stereotype God. Experience must enhance trust, but it shouldn't stereotype God. Here was this guy who was having a really bad day. Some people say he was depressed. Some people say he was scared. And yet he's in this cave and he sees all the things that God has used in his life before. He's used wind, he's used earthquake, he's used fire. And this man still has the ability to stay inside the cave even though all these are happening. And who do you think is sending the wind, the earthquake and the fire? It ain't the devil. It wasn't even weather patterns. It was God. God is sending these three things. Why? Because even then, his intent is, I know you're going to resign and you want to leave the earth, but till you remain on the earth, I'll be teaching you till the very last day. Some of you who are older than 70, 75, you think you're out to pasture? That might be your idea. It ain't God's idea. That's not a harsh word. That's a word of encouragement. Because till the day you die, he's teaching you. The same God sends earthquake, fire, wind. It was a God thing. And yet he wanted Elijah to figure out whether it was God or whether it was a God thing. There's a difference between God thing and God. You know why manifestations really do well? Because manifestations follow pattern. You do it once and you know. Ah, when I prayed this, this happened. So I'm going to pray the same thing and it'll happen again. It might be a God thing, but it ain't got God in it. And when we get used to a pattern of manifestations, guess who joins the game? The devil. Because he knows now that Jacob is chasing after what he saw and heard and experienced. And he's forgotten that he should be chasing God. Worship leaders who try to reach a certain place in worship. Pastors who try to create a certain mood. Sound guys who try to create a certain echo. Intercessors who try to create a crescendo during praying. Now forget church. Businessmen who try to create a certain... Um, way of doing business workers who create a certain pattern because God did bless them last time but I assure you one of the things God wants to do is change your frequency and do things so differently so that you don't get the same results using the same patterns this is important guys because we all fall into this trap I was sitting with someone and he was telling me, hey Jacob, I know what you did in New York. I know what you did in India. But I just want to warn you that as you go to Puri this time, make sure that you don't think that how you did things in New York and how you did things in India is the way you should do it in Puri. Because you get confidence when experience enriches you. Idolatry is when anything replaces the pursuit of God. When the object of faith replaces the one who you love and trust, it's idolatry. When the object of faith 
that you're trusting for becomes your pursuit instead of the one that you love and trust, then it is idolatry. I remember being in Taiwan, maybe I told you this, and praying for some people. And I'd gone with another pastor who was very charismatic and believed in a lot of things that happen in some of these churches that are weird. And so I had gone, uh, I met him there and he was the one who was conducting this meeting. And so I start praying for people and I go and pray for this guy. And as I pray for this guy, I'm just amazed, man. He comes and I, before I can lay hands on him, he's standing and he gets flung about six feet and goes and falls down near the wall. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I've never seen so much power unleashed through me. And the next guy comes up, I pray for that guy again. And he goes sliding across the floor and hits the wall. And I'm thinking to myself, oh shucks, this is not you, oh God. Because you're not a violent God. These people are coming with problems. These people are coming for uh, things to be made right. And I'm looking around and all the pastors who are praying there have tremendous power. And I was thinking to myself, well, I've got it too. And then I realized it is power, but it ain't God. Because there's a gentleness to God. God doesn't take his children and hurl them six feet across the floor to hit the thing for a display of power. He does things gently. And then I started deciding that I won't lay hands on anyone. So when people would come to me, I'd fold my hands and pray for them. And they would stand and receive whatever they needed to receive and they would leave. Because whatever was happening in that place, here was an attempt to try and have me buy into the same manifestation so that it would happen through me. Not all God things have God in them. Discern how God comes. It is so helpful. It is like balm to people who come to you. Hey, one of the strange things that happens, eh? and some of you who know me well can testify to this, I might dislike Jeevan for the last four days. He may have done things that really irk me. I may even go and tell Praful, man, you have no idea how that fellow is irritating me. But then he'll come for prayer, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. But when I actually speak to him, somehow God comes through. After I'm done, I'll still be upset with him. But during that time, somehow, man, God comes through. Why am I telling you this? Because once you know how God wants to come through for a person, it doesn't matter what your mental makeup is, how you feel they are not worth it, or how you feel they are worth it. When you speak to them, God will present himself as balm to them, or as judge to them, or as warrior to them. Then it doesn't matter what your situation is. Learn this, and once you learn it, you will know how to let God come through for you and through you to others. It's a brilliant way to function. And the more you learn this, the more God will trust you. Because he'll say, aha, when I speak through Rosalind, uh, she presents me correctly. Any questions, any thoughts? Okay, next point. John 5, verse 30. John 5, verse 30. One of the cool ways of making sure that God gets room in your life to present himself any which way he wants is to go with John 5, 30. That, oh God, when I say things and do things, I'm not seeking my will or my outcome, I'm seeking yours, so my judgments will be accurate. John 5, 30. Create room for God to turn up as he wants to. Create room for God to turn up as he wants to. Oh God, I do not desire my will in this. I do not desire an outcome in this. I am willing to create room for you 
to do as you will. And once I do that, it is almost impossible to get it wrong. For others, it might be, when you, pray, when you desire this for others, it's a little easier. But when you desire it for yourself, it's a little harder. Because whenever we pray, we have certain outcomes that we expect. What if you could practice this simple principle of, Father, I've presented what I needed to you. I know you will do better than I can ask, think, or imagine. I create room for you now by not desiring my will but yours. I have prayed as best as I can according to your will, but I do not desire an outcome that I have in my mind. I create room for you to do what you want to do. I wish this was true in every area of my life. But it ain't. But in, when, it comes to, when it comes to church stuff, my God, I create room for God. He gets to do a whole lot of stuff because I don't have an outcome that I have in mind. So he can end up doing far greater. But in other areas of my life, I wish I could abandon outcome. This is what I want. This is what I put in. This is what I expect. What if I could abandon that? Create room for him to do what he wants. Guys, when you do that, no, he comes as he wants to. He comes as he wills. He comes whenever he feels like he turns up as he knows is best for your situation. When it comes to healing, is it the same? I would put it this way. When I am sick, who is he coming to me as? Yes, his intent is to heal. But who is he coming to me as? Is he coming to me as, hey, I want you to get up and start serving me even while you have a fever. So get up now. Or, hey, I want to be a helper because you're helpless. Let me carry you. Or, hey, I just want to be Yahweh Rafa and uh, spread my wings over you so that healing may arise, like I say in Malachi 4.2. Or, hey, I need you to stop sinning in this area. Oh, yes, sometimes sin can be attached to sickness over a prolonged period of time, which is not the case with anybody or everybody. But if God points it out, I'll stop immediately. So, oh God, as you come to heal me, I want to see who you're coming as. And once I know that, you parents do the same with your children. You, sometimes you'll have a kid who is so sick that you'll do anything in your power to be a helper. Other times you have a kid who is reacting every day to sleeping late by half an hour. You'll say, get up, you can come back home and sleep later. You're not going to miss school. I have a friend who, whose son would fall sick 10 minutes before the bus comes. Karun, Christy's son. And 10 minutes before, I started checking his shoes because I believe if you put blotting paper in your shoes, you can get a temperature. So I even went and checked his shoes because he would fall sick 10 minutes before. There was no blotting paper in his shoes. The Sunday school kids are not here, right? Okay. But um, even us parents deal in us dealing with sickness, we deal with it differently. So in everything, hey, I'm telling you, if we can begin to practice this, God can begin, you can know the ways of God and what he plans to do before he even arrives. It's like, ah, so that's where you're going. Ah, uh, there was no blotting paper. No, he had this placebo thing going. He had practiced it so that 10 minutes before the bus, things would happen. 
he he's doing very well now guys here's the other point i want to make which is a side point god works best with nothing god works best with nothing this is very important because when we have nothing we think ah god has let us down my god this is his favorite material nothing when you don't have anything when you have nothing now there is tremendous hope because he works with nothing like the entire universe was created without substance you were created without substance you were every he works so well with nothing have great hope if you're empty have great hope if you're empty this is why i said if you can let him be who he wants to be if i can create room in him a room in me saying oh god got nothing but because i got nothing i got tons of room so you be who you want to be you'll be surprised at who he can turn up as when you give him substance and say this is what i want you to multiply now he's stuck with fish and bread be the drummer boy not the boy who came with two fish and five loaves the drummer boy what did he come with no even that doesn't work forget that analogy erase erase it was going well till that analogy fun <laughs> here a drum here too bad next one job 3712 great words great words you want god to turn up as he wants to then take this verse and stick it on your forehead job 37 verse 12 Job 37 verse 12. Don't know which version you're reading it from, but um, he loads the clouds with moisture, scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole world to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punishment, to water the earth, to show his love. If you read it from the message, 37, 11, and 12. Job 37, 11, and 12. Job 37, 11 and 12. God, it is God who fills clouds with rainwater and hurls lightning from them every which way. He puts them through their paces, first this way, then that. Commands them to do what he says all over the world. Whether for discipline or grace or extravagant love, he makes sure they make their mark. Job, are you listening? Have you noticed all this? Stop in your tracks, take in God's miracle wonders. Guys, flex be flexible to turn this way or that way be detours through samaria or be to um, sleep over in jericho uh, do whatever god tells you to and he will end up not being healer but the raiser of the dead so jesus is called to some uh, bethany by uh, mary and martha saying our brother is sick please come where is he he's on the other side of the jordan what does he do he says he's going to stay there for two more days he sleeps over at jordan for two more days what happens in the bargain the god who can heal lazarus who is sick becomes the god who can raise lazarus from the dead big difference guys but be like a cloud that can be moved by god flexible go here and the other thing is please don't try to understand understanding is highly overrated you don't need to understand 
You just need to obey. Do it without understanding. Samaria, same thing. He's heading towards Jerusalem, but he is told to go through Samaria, which, as you may already know, is a roundabout way of getting anywhere. He goes through Samaria, hostile terrain, for a Jew who's heading to Jerusalem. And yet, there at the well of Sychar, where Jacob's sons murdered hundreds of Shechemites, Jesus gives life to an entire village because he meets a woman who is sleeping with five men. And so instead of being one who is going to preach at this temple in Jerusalem, now God becomes the one who saves an entire village through a woman of ill repute who wouldn't even come to the well at the right time to avoid the other women. This is what I mean by God can turn up as he will. And when you give him that room, he becomes something that you cannot otherwise control. Otherwise, we manage God. I hate that word, managing God. And God being your father will not hijack your will, will not force you into a situation. And so even though he controls everything and can change anything he wants, because he values my free will, I begin to manage him in an odd way. When he's, one of the scriptures in Psalms is, Jacob, only if you could listen to me and if you would obey me, if you would just open your mouth, I would fill it with grain, wine, and oil. We, we can't domesticate him. Huh? This is a lion, not a cat. I saw a terrible thing on TV yesterday. They're bringing out this thing called... Where's the pen? This is just so not important. They're bringing out things now called... It's about cats. I changed my channel quickly. Movies. Movies. No, no, don't Google it. Don't Google it, Sue. Oh, okay, just checking. <laughs> no, I thought you were a cat. You're a cat person, that's why. Okay, guys, Psalm 123 verse 2 is so cool. It says, just like a um, servant looks at his master and a maiden at, his, at her mistress, so I shall be alert to the move of God. And so develop that, eh? and do not uh, try to understand things. Just obey. Understanding it come later. Understanding can come later. Psalm 123, 2. Encourage you to alertness and obedience so that you can be like that cloud in Job, Job 37. Next one. Guys, discern the body. Discern the body that God comes in. Discern the body that God comes in. As in, um, God may present himself through people that you don't fancy. Through people who don't impress you. But discern the body God comes in. Because if you despise it, you will miss a visitation. Discern the body God comes in. Because if you despise it, you will miss a visitation. In Matthew 13.55, you can hear the guys in Nazareth saying, Who does he think he is? Isn't Joseph his dad, the carpenter? Is Mary not his mother? Aren't Mary and Judas and others not his brothers and sisters? Who is this man from Galilee who thinks he can 
exert this kind of authority. So there is this inability that we have to sometimes uh, receive God when he presents himself through certain people. And sometimes those people come with flaws. And some of those flaws can be highly irritating. If you can tolerate it for five minutes, you might actually receive from a person that which God is trying to bring to you. I find this very difficult at times. There are some people that I watch and I can't stand them on a just walk away or turn the TV off or stuff like that. But sometimes you'll be surprised at how God will deliberately humble you by having you depend on him, even through flawed vessels. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul puts it this way, that we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We used to look at the Messiah that way once, but we got it all wrong and we don't do it anymore. Now the guy who missed out on an amazing opportunity to bless a woman and perhaps bless her child was Eli. Eli looks at Hannah. Hannah is mumbling and praying. And what does he think she is up to? That she's drunk. And so he goes and rebukes her saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you drunk so early in the morning? Discern the body that God comes in because God has this really bad habit of turning up through people who you don't think much of. And when he does that, you, do, you despise that and you miss out on a visitation. You miss out on a visitation. Here's the thing, guys. Where are all the pens disappearing? Are you putting them away? I don't know. Guys, here's the thing, eh? Between humility... Where? Oh. Between humility and pride, these are two extremes. We usually don't live at either extreme. So we don't live here, nor do we live here. But between humility and pride is this monster that lurks in the shadows, and that monster is called presumption. And presumption, according to 1 Samuel 15, presumption is akin to idolatry. Some Bibles use the word stubbornness, other Bibles use the word presumption. Presumption is when I have already reached a conclusion about something or someone, not based on a God idea, but based on my own um, wisdom uh, I'm not humble enough to recognize it. I'm not proud enough to despise it. And so I live here. Presumption is what I do with people. Presumption is what I do with situations. And once you begin to presume things, it becomes harder for God to turn up as he wants to because you have already arrived at some kind of a conclusion. Just two or three more and I'm done. You will see the wind every time. Not hear the wind, not feel the wind. You will see the wind every time. If you operate from this place of, oh God, I am 
going to give value to everybody who you send and listen to them four or five, six minutes before I shut them off because I got to discern the body that you come in. I just think of guys like Eddie. I think of guys like Chad. I think of guys like Mike Scantleberry. These guys, when they came to Acts 29, man, there was nothing about them that I found I wanted to cultivate a relationship with. Eddie, I avoided for two years. Chad, the moment I heard he had a church of 25,000, I thought to myself, these mega pastors, stay away from them. Mike Santelberry was pretty aggressive. And I was thinking to myself, don't want them. I avoided Eddie for two years. Why? Because sometimes you don't like the package that God comes in. But sometimes God will not come any other way but through a package that you'll have to get used to. Okay, next one. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. You know the story. Joshua's out because uh, walking around the mountains before the day of battle because he's so not sure of what's going to happen. It's his first major battle after Moses has left. And so uh, he's walking around and he sees the commander of the armies of Israel. And he sees this man with his sword drawn out. And uh, um, he says, Who are, whose side are you on? He says, Neither, I'm ne- on nobody's side. I'm the commander of the armies of Israel. And then he says, take off your shoes for where you stand is holy. Guys, at the end of the day, all that you need to know is how God is appearing to you. Once you know how God is appearing to you, you just have to look at who he is coming as and you will know everything you need to know. Here is what Joshua realizes. Here is a man with a sword drawn out and the sword that is drawn out is pointed towards Jericho. First thing. Second, this man is the commander of the armies of Israel and Joshua is leading Israel out of captivity. Third, take your shoes off for this ground is holy. This is God himself. Now, what do you want? What else do you need once you have these three things? As a man who is leading an army into battle, if you see that you have God who's just said, take your shoes off your feet because this ground is holy, if he says, I come as a commander of the armies of Israel, and that means angelic forces, and he has his sword unsheathed and is pointing it to Jericho, what confirmation do you need? All Joshua does is he bows down on the ground and worships God. I love seeing God as who he is in a situation because I get to know the direction he'll be traveling in and so I got to run behind and what he's going to do and I know the victory already or I know the outcome already. And God does not speak in riddles. He's not some nebulous wafer vapor. He, when he wants to make himself present, can make himself very evident. There'll be no two ways about it. I remember someone who was really not well and had suffered for a while calling me and, um, um, because they were in dire situation recently. And so I'm in another country and, and I'm walking in someone's garden. It's pitch dark. I'm saying, God, need help. What needs to happen? What do I have to do? And I remember walking in that garden and suddenly I, I see what looks like Christ out of Revelations 1.13 
towering into the sky so high that I can't even see his face. All I hear God saying is, tell them to lift up their hands and push back and I'll take care of it. So I call the person and I say, hey, lift up your hands this way and push back and see what happens. Man, two, three minutes, the entire situation just swirled around. It was such an amazing victory. I'm thinking to myself, how in the world does stuff like this happen, man? Because I wasn't confident of what I was saying because it sounded so unconnected, unrelated. But sometimes, guys, all I have to do is figure out who you are appearing as. If you're appearing as Revelations 1.13, feet burning brass, eyes blazing fire, a sword coming out from your mouth, towering, who, who can stand against you? He can make himself evident. And he does it with different people, different ways, eh? Next one, Luke 7, 19. Just make sure that um, scripturally your understanding is not parochial. By parochial, I mean uh, localized to your denomination or to your father or your grandfather or um, a certain uh, Pentecostal or Baptist way of thinking or whatever. Because this is what happens to John the Baptist. In Luke 7, 19, John the Baptist sends two of his friends to ask Jesus, are you the real deal or should we be expecting another Messiah? Why? Because in Luke 3, 17, when John had prophesied, he had said that Jesus will come with a winnowing fork. He'll separate the grain from the husk and he'll burn up the husk. And instead of burning up the husk, Jesus is healing Syrophoenician women. He's healing the centurion's servant. He's going around doing good to the Gentiles. And in John's head, it doesn't compute. This very man that I prophesied on, that will separate the husk from the grain and burn up the husk, is actually going to the husk and he's helping them. Why? Because John didn't have an idea that in Genesis 12, 3, God had already said, through this nation I will bless the other nations. Sometimes if my understanding, my scriptural understanding is either incomplete or faulty, or if it's parochial, as in localized to some denominational way of thinking or some father-grandfather way of thinking, then God cannot turn up except in the way that you will receive him. And should he turn up any other way, you will not recognize him. That's a sad thing, eh? That God can turn up in my life and do something and I will not give him the glory that is due him because I did not see him because he didn't turn up the way he was supposed to. This is what happened in Jerusalem. Christ, the king, the Creator of the universe was walking amongst them. He came to his own and his own did not recognize him. Why? Scriptural understanding. Therefore be instructed in doctrine. And my God, don't go being instructed in doctrine from four or five places. Uh, can you repeat the last part a little louder? No, I'm saying that if I am scripturally not uh, solid on who Christ can be, let's assume my thinking is Christ comes to punish. Now, uh, it'll be very hard for me to receive Christ when I have done something really wrong and instead of turning up to he turns up and gets really becomes really kind to me 
I will not be able to handle that Jesus Christ because I've been living in my house, praying and fasting for the last four days, hoping he'll spare me his rod. And instead he's coming with gifts and you think to yourself, how do you receive this Christ? You don't even recognize him. When the kindness of God is not recognized, then it is hard to repent because it is the kindness of God that causes people to repent. So if I can convince you that God is not a kind God, but is a harsh God who will exact his pound of flesh, Repentance will be very difficult. You will repent out of fear, not out of kindness. So our scriptural understanding of God thoroughly affects how he presents himself. I want to end with this last one, man. Ah, this is so cool. I just love the truths that God has in his scripture and that every week you can come and we can discover new truths. Eh? I mean, in Exodus 3.14, what does he say he is? He says, I am that I am and I, uh, I will do that I, whatever I want to do. Or actually, the, we just leave it at I am that I am. But what he really says when he talks about him as Yahweh is, I am that I am, I will be that I will be. I am that I am. I am that I am. I will be that I will be. If you want to put who, uh, you can, but this is the actual sense of it. I am that I am. I will be that I will be. As in, I am so blooming sovereign that there is no beginning, no end, no restriction, no constraint. No, you can't do this or you can do this. I am that I am, I will be that I will be. Now, this is the God that we try to capture and make him a certain way. What if he wants, in a situation that you are in, to turn up as kinsman redeemer? What if he wants to be judge? What if he wants to be warrior? What if he wants to be shepherd? What if he wants to be father? What if we were willing to be ready to accept him the way he wants to be and be able to recognize it? Read the letters. This is the part that really uh, got me. When you read the letters that Christ writes to the book of Revelation, it is fascinating how he changes and appears to different churches, man. So in Ephesus, he turns up... In Ephesus, um, he... In Ephesus, he is dealing with their first love and he wants to examine their first love. So in Ephesus, he turns up as the one who is walking among the lampstands, as in walking among his churches, seeing where they are at. Because Ephesus' problem is first love and he needs to examine them. And so he turns up as, you, I, I come as one who is walking among the lampstands and I'm examining you. In Smyrna, where they are going to have 10 days of testing and affliction, he turns up as the first and the last who was dead and now lives because he knows what they are going to go through. who died and came back to life again, the first and the last, because he knows Smyrna is going to be tested for 10 days. He tells them, guys, there's such affliction going to come to you. Some of you will die, but know this, that I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and rose again. In uh, Pergamum, which he says is the 
throne of Satan, he comes as the one with the double-edged sword. Why? Because he knows what they need. So in Pergamum, which is Satan's throne, he says, these are the words of him who has a double-edged sharp sword in his mouth. And, and, and Pergamum is already thinking of the letters that Paul used to write to the Ephesians. And Pergamum was part of the Ephesian uh, churches where he said, hey, remember that to take the sword of the spirit with which you can do harm to the enemy. In Thyatira, in Thyatira, where Jezebel and her, and her idolatry and sexual immorality was defiling the church, he comes as the one with blazing eyes of fire and burning feet of bronze, as one who can come to purify and tread down that which is rotten. And you begin to see this thing developing where within his churches he's turning up a certain way. What if, what if Ephesians wants him to come some other way? It doesn't help. Remember, God is not trying to do a costume thingy and turn up in fancy dress to you. He is doing this because he wants to help you. Help me. Help the church. This is why it's critical that every year Acts 29 know. So, oh God, who do you want us to be? Who do you want to be to us in 2020 so that we can be what you want us to be to you in 2020? Sardis. Sardis, he turns up as one who has a sevenfold spirit. All-knowing. One who has the seven eyes of the spirit, all-knowing. Why? Because in Sardis, the problem was, you guys give the, uh, uh, give the appearance that everything is fine with you. You have a reputation for being uh, fine, but really you're wretched, naked, poor, and uh, you are dead. In Philadelphia, he turns up with the key of David. Why? Because he says, hey, you guys have very little strength. But my God, you've been faithful. I am coming as the one who holds the key of David because the door that I open, nobody can shut. And the door that I shut, nobody can open. So come, I'll show you what you can do with your faithfulness and your little strength. See what happens when we recognize him for who he is and how he appears to us. Changes everything, guys. It applies to your home, applies to your marriage, applies to your body, applies to your ma um, future marriage, applies to your business, applies to your work, applies to your church. There is no area where Christ, the all-sufficient one, I am that I am, I will do what I want to do. If he turns up the way he wants to and if I create room for it, my God, something else. And then the, I think, is there anything after Philadelphia? Yeah, Laodicea. Laodicea. And in Laodicea, look at how he turns up. And it's different. Every time something goes wrong, he doesn't turn up as judge. In Laodicea, which is lukewarm and complacent, look at how he turns up as a faithful and true witness. Exactly opposite of what the church is. I often think of Laodicea and I think, oh God, they were lukewarm, they were lukewarm and they were complacent. You should have come as a judge and said, out with you. No, instead, to the lukewarm and the complacent, he comes as... Listen, I'm the one who is ridiculously faithful and I'm the true witness. Different strokes for different folks, man. 
This is what he talks about in Isaiah 28. Caraway has to be threshed a certain way. Cumin has to be threshed a certain way. You don't run a wheel over every seed. Some things have to be threshed, some things have to be sifted. So, next week uh, the sermon will be shorter because I'm not here. And so, ask this question, guys. Uh, if you can't do it now, uh, you can do it later. Oh God, who do you want? Who do you primarily want to be to me this week? Who do you primarily want to be to me this week? I sometimes ask it every day, guys. Who do you primarily want to be to me this week? How do you want to turn up in my life this week? It doesn't mean that the week is only about that. The word here is primarily, what do you want to do? That's what I asked before worship time. Say, who do you want to primarily be this week, uh, this worship time? What do you want to emphasize? So when we do breaking of bread, what do you want of your life to come out? And so today the whole thing has been, hey, present me as one who is victor over the devil and his demonic armies. Read scriptures. Keep going. Even if people look like they're not listening, can you leave that with me and trust the Holy Spirit? Do what I'm telling you to. This is not guesswork or hearsay, guys. It's not like, oh God, who do you want to primarily be with me? And then you're trying to guess. No, no, no. This is revelation from God that will come to you. Matthew 16, 16 to 19. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Oh, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're like Elijah. Some say, and then Jesus said, really, but who do you think I am? Then one man gets a revelation. Hey, trust God for revelation when you seek how he wants to appear to you. What will happen once you begin to recognize this? It will change your worship. It changes your worship. How can you sing songs of love to a warrior king? What if he turns up as bridegroom? How can you sing songs of let's go marching when he's turned up as bridegroom? Now it will be songs of love. Who he turns up as begins to reorganize your worship and prayer. So if he turns up as warrior king, my prayers will turn into decrees. It changes your worship, your walk, your talk, your expectations. It changes your expectations. What were you expecting? That you're going to get this by sitting on your backside? You could have had that if he had turned up as bridegroom because the bridegroom likes giving gifts to his bride. But what do you know? He turned up as a warrior. What does that mean? Get off your backside and go marching with him and kick some... Um, uh, whatever needs to be kicked. <laughs> because... It changes your expectations, it changes your ways, it changes your walk, it changes your talk, it changes your worship. It gives you keys as to how to deal with the situation for that day. And then it gives you keys for others too. This is why I marvel that I can meet with you this week and I tell you something. And when I meet with you next week, I'm telling you something totally different. And you look at me as you are so inconsistent. Are you really hearing from God? And I'm telling you, sometimes the messages may be mixed, but they are God, man. Habakkuk 2.1, climb the lookout tower, scan the horizon, wait to see what God says. Climb the lookout tower. Climb the lookout tower. 
climb the lookout tower, scan the horizon, wait to see what God says. One last time, climb the lookout tower, scan the horizon, wait to see what God says. Father, I think you're amazing. I think there are so many things that you can be to us, individually and as a church. I think you are very wise. We think that actually. We think you're brilliant. But now we want to create room for your brilliance. So that it will be all you. All you. So that we may not manage you. Oh my God, we are sorry for managing you. By giving you very little room. Or by going to past experiences and replicating them. We are sorry for managing you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, could Jeevan and Heidi come up?